0: Disgraceland, a music and true crime podcast about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly hosted by me, Jake Brennan is back with season 5 and you're not going to want to miss new episodes on Guns N' Roses, Jay-Z, Prince, Ozzy Osbourne, Nipsey Hussle Run DMC, Selena, The Rolling Stones and more. You can listen to Disgraceland on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola.
1: everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here at the home studio, Ponce City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, this week in the studio, everyone, part of the Friends and Family edition, I have my old friend, one of my dear bros, uh, and I don't throw that word around. Trust me. Chad Crowley. Uh, Chad is an old friend. We um, we work together on the Stuff You Should Know TV show. Chad owns a and runs a production company called School of Humans. He uh, is... Very busy now, which is great, and has really made a name for himself uh, developing TV and uh, documentaries. And he's actually even doing a podcast with us now uh, that you can look forward to called Hell and Gone in the Future. Uh, look for that great, great true crime podcast. But uh, Chad uh, directed and produced and, and co-wrote all of the Stuff You Should Know TV show episodes uh, for us. When we had our show about six or eight years ago with, uh, with Science Channel, Chad became a really, really good friend very quickly. We are brothers from another mother, park our cars in the same garage. We are from similar places and have similar taste. And he is someone who, uh, he's just a very, uh, very good dude who I trust with anything, uh, more so than, uh, maybe many other people that I've met in the world. Chad is a man of integrity and, uh, Very trustworthy, um, honest, good guy to the bone and has great taste and has done some cool work in his life. We talk about some of his work through the years uh, with outsider artists and folk artists and uh, kind of unpack his career in advertising, which basically led to him saying, screw this, can't do this anymore, I'm out of here. And uh, Chad is an ambitious guy who I always would want in my corner and uh, will always be in his corner. And we talked about Chinatown, um, one of the great, more perfect, if not perfect movies of all time uh, from Robert Town and and Jack Nicholson and Robert Evans and Roman Polanski. And uh, we talked a little bit about Polanski and what art uh, coming from genuine uh, creeps and how to view art from people who have done very bad things. Uh, We don't have the answers, but we certainly get into that a little bit. But it was a great pleasure to talk to Chad about Chinatown. And really dig into this uh movie. So if you haven't seen it, um see it first because it's it's one of the all-time greats. And uh then tune in and listen as we unpack Chinatown with Chad Crowley.
2: So what do we do? Tell me how to how to do this. We're just
1: we just rap, man. That's something you and I can do all day long. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh yeah, I was thinking about you the other day when I was wondering what movie you were going to pick. What What did you think? I don't know. I mean, you came at me with Blazing Saddles, which, uh, I mean, you know how I feel about that movie. I do. It's one of the great comedies of all time.
2: We could change the plan right now, Chuck. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um, I was like, oh, man, it's just such sensitive times. And with that movie through today's lens and... uh so you went with the Roman Polanski movie.
3: Well,
2: yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> right thought about after that, that afterwards. Not, I, I have some things to say about that though, that hopefully we'll, uh, we'll hold on to that. Provide any cover, but my perspective, if you, if you care to have it on, um, uh, <laughs> on blazing saddles is, isn't it the ultimate, if you can satirize those characters in that way, isn't yeah. that the ultimate statement of, of tolerance and, uh, and being, Open, you know, yeah. in ways that maybe it was just still too sophisticated to come through.
1: Well, I mean, when you look at Blazing Saddles, the idiots in that movie are uh, the, the white rednecks. Precisely. And the smartest, most clever character is Clevon Little. Right. Isn't that?
2: I For guess, sure. Isn't, and, and then at the end, with all the gay guys and stuff, like, oh, yeah. He has it right, is my, <laughs> but I can well, get Well, Richard why.
1: Pryor was a co writer on that movie, too. Was he? I don't mm-hmm. think I knew that. Oh yeah, yeah. He covered so, that with Mel Brooks, and I think like one other person.
2: My story now uh, is every day for one summer uh, we went to Jason Hembry's house. <laughs> we played poker using better cheddars, these little, uh, yeah. these little shitty cheese crackers, and we watched Blazing Saddles until his mom got home. Every day for one summer.
1: <laughs> and why? Because he had to turn it off.
2: Well, yeah, and she just kicked us out. Right time. Oh, know. I thought you meant so because we were just of, these little yeah. You know, Dirty, Unwashed, Lashkey Kids, Mm -hmm. and we watched it every day. I bet we watched it a hundred times. It's up there for me, too. But I did not know that Richard Pryor Pryor wrote it. Yeah, yeah.
1: He was a co-writer. And I think he wrote—I think the the thought is when people hear that, they think that he wrote a lot of the Cleavon Little stuff because, like, Richard Pryor is a black guy. So he wrote for the African-American character— but uh, apparently that's not the case. And he wrote a bunch of the other stuff.
2: Um, it's really sophisticated comedy.
1: Yeah. So, a comedy, I mean, you could for sure never make that today as is. <laughs> I don't yeah, think, you know. Uh, unless like Spike Lee made it as a, you know, an Uber statement.
2: Yeah. I, w- I guess that's unfortunate that you can't make that movie now, If, if in, in my view. Although maybe... Maybe Tarantino's doing some stuff like that. Like, remember that scene in That's Django? True. Yeah, was it Django. Well, I don't know. Pick those, a movie. Well, I I think it was where those. The, it was like a big mob of angry dudes on horses, and they like rode in, and they had yeah. sacks on their head.
1: Yeah, the clansmen that the couldn't Klansmen. get the yeah. the the masks right.
2: Right, and he's like, "No, hang on, just a damn minute." <laughs> yeah. My wife stayed up all <laughs> night last night making these goddamn things. You know. Yeah. Sure. Like. Clearly, an homage to that movie.
1: Yeah, and clearly saying like these people are the biggest idiots on the planet. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. And it was it was a super funny moment in, in a really heavy film that yeah. was a little preachy or whatever. But I yeah. think it was Django anyway.
1: So for the benefit of listeners, um, I know where you grew up, but uh, and that you and I are good old friends. But uh, what tell everyone where you're from because yeah. I'm curious to unpack a bit of this. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I don't know how interesting it is, but, uh, so like you, I grew up here, uh, just south of the city in a Mm. tiny place, uh, called Rex, uh, Jonesboro and Rex are kind of interchangeable there, Uh uh, where I grew up, tiny little town with a mill and a Creek and a baseball field. And, um, it was a weird place. It was, uh, a suburb of Atlanta, maybe 20 miles from here. Uh, very diverse though. So we had a huge Cambodian population. Really? Oh yeah. Huh. Um, uh, and we also, uh, were probably, uh, of, of non-Cambodian people, we were probably, uh, half and half African American and Caucasian. So right. everything was kind of mashed up in our, in our community. That's the South, man. It gets such a bad rap. The South is so much more tolerant than people realize. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would call it tolerant, but it was just that was well, that was the mix. You sure, know, we were stuck on that boat. And, Can be tolerant, let, yeah, brother. Uh, it, it was so. I've thought about it and in and in a, have uh, thought about writing stories like a series of you know my my attempt at a Faulknerian kind of world based on that world. <laughs> yeah, uh, which I would call tar water, which is this notion of like um the these these creatures that are sort of still have at least one foot stuck in the primordial sludge mm-hmm. you know and maybe a web foot here or there <laughs> but and i was definitely one of those kids um i can show you some really interesting pictures but um but but that are you know trying to figure it out just like we all are yeah. and what's interesting is that small community has produced all kinds of artists and I don't know why that is. So you have uh, a very prominent classical composer who I grew up with. His name's Joel Puckett. No way. Yeah. He's, uh, I don't know. He's done a bunch of stuff, uh-huh. conservatory, this and you know, whatever that, uh, we've got a couple of prominent opera singers, Michael Redding, also same, same uh-huh. exact, and a lot of stuff like that. Wow. So maybe it was, it was, a, it was, a it was definitely a Southern Gothic kind of, Life, though I mean there uh-huh. was, you know, there were a lot of uh, maladies. You know, people with no eyes and and, and not <laughs> or like one eye and stuff, and uh, lots of fighting and not, not a lot of shirts. Yeah, you know, that kind uh-huh. of thing. A lot of At bear chests. That's the way I remember it. I'm sure that anyone listening, it's from there, may have I bet
1: different. it wasn't uh, a whole lot different than me growing up in Stone Mountain.
2: I bet it wasn't. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was very similar. We had uh, so so its claim to fame is that uh, it is the town that Gone with the Wind is based in. Terra is Jonesboro. No shit, that's right. So uh, there is a I think I still that. there today. It's now just this sort of cheesy um, tourist attraction, but it was called Stately Oaks, and that mm, is the, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, the the cotton plantation that Tara is based on and mm-hmm. styled after, and so forth. So when Margaret Mitchell was writing the book. She's uh, from here, right mm-hmm. Right down the street. She had an uncle or something that lived. I don't know if if her family lived in that house or if she was just had some proximity to it. Mm-hmm. But she came from a wealthy family and they had lots of land holdings and stuff. And so they uh, she would go there. And that's how the whole thing came about.
1: But you grew up kind of like me. Uh, running barefoot through the woods, jumping in creeks and yeah. picking out crawdads and salamanders and jumping bikes and uh,
2: yeah, shooting no, at,
1: no parental oversight,
2: no, definitely not. Uh, <laughs> if you weren't shooting at a spray paint can with a BB gun, <laughs> it was because you were shooting at your brother, <laughs> right? Or a neighbor, yeah, it was that. I didn't get thing. a BB gun until later. Uh, my brother still has two BBs lodged in his uh, sort oh. of in his baby fat,
1: it's like uh, royal tannin bombs.
2: Is that is yeah? That they thing?
1: had he still had a. Ben Stiller had a BB in his knuckle from where Royal had shot him when they were kids. Yeah. His father shot him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what I'm curious about, though, is um, like the Chad I know, who has like become one of my brothers, is a man of discerning tastes and uh, and, uh, goes very deep on the right kinds of culture and the best movies and authors and books. And I know where you're from. I know who you are now. And there's, there's a bit of a Delta between those two things. <laughs> and I know your family to a certain degree. And like, I know the influences weren't coming in from there probably. So like, where did you, what set you on that path toward?
2: It's good yeah, culture. It's, it's a good question. I had the great fortune of meeting, uh, the short answer is a teacher. Oh, her name was Linda Daughtry. She's still a friend of this day. Wow. Um, She, they, she and her husband, Tommy, who would later be a mentor of mine, they live in up in the mountains now. And we now take the kids and go stay with them. And Mm -hmm. they they have the life that we hope to have when we, when we retire. But she, um, she took me under her wing right before high school and had heard about me because I was like into painting and Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And, um, not not saying that there was like a prodigy quality to it, but like there, I was, I was clearly like tracking in 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 that way. And so she had heard about me in a small community and she reached out. She actually went to our church and like found me at church and said, Hey, I just want to let you know, like I, I you know, I'm here to help and you know, and everything. So do you feel different, Chad. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I do. So just, just that, just that, whatever that validation or whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it, I think gave me an awful lot of, of kind of running room to explore a lot of things i had been thinking about. And so, and I, you know, and I was already like, I I was, I was exploring what I knew to explore, but, but the world that I knew of was, was pretty small. Yeah. So she brought me in and said, look, here's, here's Salvador Dali and here's, you know, so many other things. Yeah. And and I think from, and Wagner and, you know, just all these things. And I, I think she was smart enough. I mean, she, she, she understood that that was probably all it was going to take for me. Yeah. Was just to know that these things were there and to be able to start feeding from them. She, I think, she could see there was a maybe a hunger I didn't know that I had, mm-hmm. and it did. It made all the difference. I, you know, I went from sort of you know, drawing like, uh, you know, car, uh, Robocop, right? To like exploring, uh, Marcel Duchamp and how to, you know, actually express myself as an artist instead of just do this thing I could do with my hand and draw things that look like things I'd seen. Yeah. Uh, and then it just really ballooned from there. She encouraged me to pick up a guitar, which I did. Just that having, being able to play those three chords in the way I wanted to play them or whatever in the early days.
1: Man, that that, uh, early teacher influence can be so huge, you know? Yeah. And and I know that the urge for a teacher to, uh, especially in a place like Jonesboro, to identify like this and pluck it and, you know, It sounds uh, it sounds a little elitist to say, like, you know, this guy is special and I'm going to pluck him out because he's got talent and I don't want him. But the road for a lot of those guys was community college and totally the case of beer and and the fight on the weekends. And, you know, I mean, that was the reality of it.
2: Yeah. And I certainly wasn't the only one, you know, not
1: to not community college, you know.
2: No, of course. Um, By the way, have you seen Last Chance? You should talk about that. Great show. I haven't uh, Netflix. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I certainly wasn't the only one. Linda had a massive influence on a lot of people. And I yeah. was talking earlier about all these people that became artists. Um, I think she had a lot to do with just creating that culture in this little public high school that, you know, sort of caused that yeah. to happen.
1: I got a note from a, uh, we had this, I had this teacher one year in high school, an English teacher. Uh, and I think she only taught at our school for a year. It was one of those things like you know how most teachers are just like legends, yeah. And like they taught your older brother and older sister, and oh, then yeah. you go through, and they they're still there today. But she only taught there one year, and I had her, and I remember she wrote in my yearbook something about I have to go back and see exactly what it was, but something like you're going to make it one day. You're a good writer and like a talented kid.
2: How did that make you feel?
1: It what did it meant you a do? lot to me, and I think. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie and say that, like, and from that moment on, right. like, I pursued the arts because I fucked around forever yeah, um, and didn't make any headway career-wise until my mid-30s, yeah. for God's sakes. But uh, it meant a lot to me. I, I just didn't, and I've talked to other guests about this. I didn't know it was possible to be a director or a writer or yeah, work I, in the movies. From yeah. where we came from, I didn't know that you could do that. Yeah. Like, you here. could get those jobs. But so, you had to be kind of born into it.
2: The height of culture and art in my upbringing was like Bob Ross, and what I, which and, I've been watching lately, by yeah, the way, oh on yeah. Netflix. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what uh, what I could find on PBS really, mm-hmm. really represented. So you know, Grumbacher and uh, these cooking shows, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a show called Secret City, which was like a Canadian drawing show that I was fascinated with. Oh, that's cool. Um, and the height of literature was probably reading Rainbow. <laughs> you know, uh, so yeah, so having those horizons kind of greatly expanded by just one person yeah, can make the difference.
1: Well, what about when it came time for like movies? I mean, there's nothing wrong with growing up on RoboCop and Die Hard for sure. Yeah. But what, like you've got brothers. Did you guys have family night as movies? Did you go out? I know your dad was uh, yeah. very important to you.
2: Yeah. My dad was big into movies and he sort of had this, uh, he had really good taste in films. Um, Obsessed with Sergio Leone. He I was about didn't to know. say probably westerns and war movies. Yeah, 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 and Charles Bronson, <laughs> of course. Uh, so I, you know, what I knew of film came from what we could see on a Saturday night on uh-huh. you know Channel sixty nine or whatever. the right. you know TCM of the day was.
1: Uh, by the way, that's not a, a sexual joke for you people out. There. Channel sixty like nine, no, Channel was... sixty nine was a real channel growing up here in Atlanta.
2: Yeah, for you younger listeners, that's on the UFH side of the dial. Which that's is, right. I don't know the difference between VHF. UHF. UHF, sorry. Yeah. UHF, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that, So uh, the first movie that my dad ever took me to was a movie called uh, Christine, Stephen King's movie. Sure. About a About a demented car. Yeah, and, starring
1: uh, the future great director, Keith Gordon.
2: Really? Yeah, he's he's directed some really good movies. The guy, the main movie yeah, guy? the dude from back to school. I had no idea. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, and I was surely not supposed to be in there. I mean, it's a classic story. Like, my yeah. dad wanted to see it, and that was how. Right. You know, I heard you talking to Dax the other day, and same kind of thing. It was like. Yeah. we. Uh, I think the second movie I ever saw was called Tough Turf, which is one of these sort of, like, uh, like a teen grindhouse kind of thing. I don't uh-huh. even remember what it was, but I feel like it had like James Spader or something in it. And I'm sure somebody can look it up, but it was, it was totally like scantily clad, uh-huh. very, you know, <laughs> uh, eighties kind of young ladies. And yeah. that my dad said, you know, that was what we were going to see that Saturday night. So.
1: And what about at home? The, the VCR was running a lot? Or...
2: We rented a VCR for uh, a while, oh, which is those what, you, days. what you could do. We got yeah. one eventually. How much was a VCR back then? It seemed like it was $10,000. <laughs> but it was probably like... I have no idea. 200 I know when we got <laughs> one, uh, my Uncle Frankie, who, uh, awesome dude, was just like a great character. We should write something about him someday. He was a used car salesman. And I just remember late at night one time, he lived in Memphis, but for whatever reason, my mom said, Frankie's coming over. He's bringing us a VCR. <laughs> and we were like ecstatic, right? Oh yeah. Because we, you know, it was totally embarrassing to be in the, we didn't have Blockbuster. We had a home run pizza and video. right? You know? And uh, you'd be standing there with your little rentable VCR, you know, trying to look cool. And there was no way to do that. Uh, so we were ex- excited <laughs> and at 10 o'clock Frankie shows up and he's a little sawed off dude shorter than I am. <laughs> And he's carrying it, and he's in a box truck. Like, he's got a bo- like box truck full of VCRs. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm asking my dad, I'm like, what is this? And it's never mind. Sure, just, yeah, sure. Just watch the VCR. <laughs> so, that's how we got a VCR. Were they stolen? I got to believe they were warm, if not okay, blazing hot. hot. <laughs> He got a good deal. I doubt he stole them, though. I'm sure there was a right. secondary market but there was through just, which
1: he— Yeah, some shady business going on.
2: Yeah. <laughs> loving, them, loving them.
1: Well, that VCR, I mean, I grew up—we didn't get cable on—you know, I grew up on a dirt road at first. That And it just sounds like out in the country. It really wasn't. It was an Atlanta suburb. Right. But it was on a street that uh, wasn't a development. It was just eight or nine houses. And it was a gravel road till I was like, I don't know, man, like 10. Yeah. And uh and it's so funny, I remember when they paved it and how smooth that motherfucker felt oh, yeah, when dude. I first we first drove over it. But we didn't get cable as a result of being sort of an off street till a little bit later. Yeah. I didn't have cable when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. I think I got it when I was around eleven. Kind of near the launch of M T V. And uh it's uh that HBO, like when we got HBO, that literally changed my life.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean I remember we did we didn't have HBO. I remember my cousin David climbed the pole. Oh yeah. And like uh uh-huh. the thing and mm-hmm. like we had it for a week until they they spotted it and they came yeah. out and got it. But uh but it, but one of the neighbors had it. And so that was like the that was if you couldn't go to the movie theater, that was the next best thing was to go across the street mm-hmm. to the neighbors who had it. And uh yeah, that there was an entire universe in their TV box that had never yeah. been made available to us. You Did know? you have aspirations for filmmaking
1: back then? Or was it more about <laughs> drawing and art? Or was that even on your radar? A lot
2: of un unguided aspiration to do something awesome. You know, really? so, yeah, it was, if we were building BMX tracks, it was like, we're going to build this BMX track. It's going to be a commercial enterprise. It's going <laughs> to be the most yeah. artful and successful BMX track. I would enlist a big group of people to, uh, do that and then they would lose interest before I would. And, you know, and so there were a lot of failed ventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was always painting and sculpting and. Uh, didn't that's really, a, that
1: really explains a lot, does it? Yeah, because you own and run your own production company now, like you weren't. Yeah, and I know you, dude, you're not you've never been satisfied to to half ass anything.
2: Yeah, no, I, that's that's probably true. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah. So. A lot of, like, failed carnivals and, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> a lot of these kind of things. Uh, but I didn't know, I, I, until much later, I had no idea that, like, filmmaking right. was an actual art or a craft. That, right. You know. So it took a while. Um, it took kind of getting out in the world, and I became a graphic designer and sort of began to make my living.
1: And your college experience was?
2: uh, uh It was sort of a... It was a dropout situation. Uh Um, The teacher I mentioned, Linda Daughtry, her husband was the art professor at the local college. Uh He, uh, I'd I'd gotten to know him because of her, and so he said, just come do whatever you want in my room. And Mm -hmm. so that's what I did for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, chased a bunch of stuff and uh, ultimately just decided to learn how to design Stuff and just sort of like taught myself how to use all the tools to mm-hmm. be a professional graphic designer. I started a little that's awesome design agency, uh, in 1999, 98, 99, sold it in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a not, not a, not a great stack of money, but enough to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next and, um, got into advertising, became an art director.
1: Yeah. And I love the story. The Little Debbie story.
2: Which one? There are a lot.
1: No, well, <laughs> no, no. I'm not talking about your personal obsession with eating Little Debbie's. Yeah. I'm talking about when you were working on uh, on set on a job, and that's when you sort of knew. Oh, you right. You had to get out of there.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, th- yeah. So, advertising, w- well, what advertising gave me was, it was the first time I ever saw like a camera shoot something because we like, we, we concepted a TV spot, mm-hmm. which I played it cool. Like I had done that a million times, but I really had not. And, um, and then, you know, whatever it was a month later, it was time to shoot it. And the, the way it works in the ad agency business is they bring in an outside production company and mm-hmm. the creatives who had developed the spot, wrote and art directed the, the concept. They go out on set and they work with the commercial director and the, mm-hmm. and the shot and the spot gets produced. Uh, when I saw that world, that was the first time I'd ever understood that that mm-hmm. would, really, I mean, I'm sure I understood what a director was before that, but that was the first time I was like, Oh, okay. There's that guy. There's that guy. I want to be that. I want to be that guy over there. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of like pulling all the strings. Yeah. I realized that that, that, that that was a culmination of kind of everything I'd worked on up to that point, because he's composing a frame. He's thinking, he's working with the art director. In this case, it was a puppet in the shot, in the, in the spot. So, you know, I had ma- been making puppets my whole life in various ways. And so, um, and, and then he's like, you know, calling this and that, and he was part business and part art. And I was like, yeah, man, I don't know how I do this, but that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's my guy right there. So I, that was, that kind of was a moment when I was like, I'm going to figure out how I do this now, uh, or do that yeah. you know, starting now. Uh, but what, but so a, a couple of years went by, we did that made a lot of spots, bank spots, whatever whatever. And I just there, there came a time when um advertising's sole objective is to sell product. Yeah. whatever that product is. And it is an artful business. I mean, there's a lot of great creativity in mm. that in that business. Some of the best art and some of the best film directors ever started in that world and and you know, And still working commercials, sure. You know, Ang Lee, Wes Anderson, you name it.
1: Yeah, I worked on a spot with uh Tony Scott, yep, and uh, Michael Bay, yep, yep. Uh, did not work with Christopher Guest, but he was in an office I was in. I mean, those guys are all wrapped.
2: Oh man, I mean, Bennett Miller, Spike Lee, I mean, so mm-hmm. so many, you know. So, Errol Bennett, Morris, yeah, Errol Morris is that. I mean, for, for a long time, that's where he makes his money. Yeah, I was going to say that's how he <laughs> remains to be Errol Morris. So, um, so, however, there came a time when I had more or less three projects on my desk at at, at that time. One was uh, to sell Little De- Debbie snacks as an on-the-go snack in the morning. <laughs> for like, kids. Mom can throw it, at, throw it at them as they hop in the minivan. Right. As a breakfast. And, uh, and the tagline, I don't know if it is still this, but it used to be, uh, for a long time, unwrap a smile. <laughs> so I was being told. Boy, that's Don Draper City. <laughs> yeah. Uh. The other, one of the the other three pro or two projects on the desk was, uh, for a bank Mm -hmm. and it was, the brief was sell home equity lines of credit to people to pull the equity out of their house and put in a pool or go on a vacation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the third was, uh, health insurance Mm -hmm. for a major gigantic world's largest. Uh, health insurance company in which um, premiums were rising for no reason. And mm-hmm. and not that you get the whole straight skinny as the ad agency, but you do get a little bit of a look under the hood of mm-hmm. sort of what the real motivations are for certain things. And uh, it, it just, it just felt wrong to me. And so I realized that I was, I was contributing to some kind of problem. I didn't necessarily understand what yeah. it was, but there was this sort of axis of evil on my desk and it represented the ability for me as an artist to express myself and yeah. obviously to provide uh and make a living and i knew it would be a lot of fun to do these things but there was this underlying problem that i was really struggling with you know um and sometime just before that or maybe just after that we'd also been working for a major power company huge power company and we went into this room and they said well, here's the deal, guys. We don't know how you're going to solve this. It was like for a big brand campaign, you know, mm-hmm. sort of anthemic, like we are so and so or whatever. I forget exactly what it was, but I just remember this guy in his very nice suit in this very glossy conference room says, "The deal is, we have 200 years of coal on hand to burn. Mm. It's your guys' like problem to figure out how to make that okay." Yeah, uh, that was. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that was that was the mission. Wow. So I was, I was like, man, I, got, I just don't think I can do this. Yeah. Um, so I, You
1: had sort of a Jerry Maguire moment, right?
2: I guess so. But I, I spent about a year trying to get fired. And every time, like I would just, I, everything I did just got me promoted. And then I won like the, <laughs> and then I won like the company award, like the little crystal thing, like the, <laughs> like the best employee on planet earth and all this stuff. I don't, uh, but eventually I just decided to, um, to jump out and give it a shot and do the things I wanted to do. By that time I had made a documentary Mm -hmm. uh, about a small community in rural Alabama um, called Geez Bend and had begun working on a a bunch of movie ideas and uh, anything I knew to work on.
1: Music video for Ben Soli.
2: That was a little later, but yeah, yeah. But I had done some music videos Uh um, prior to that and just figuring out how to be the guy behind the camera. Is that Geez Bend anywhere online? that doc uh, oh it's called Birds of Eden and it is not it is still it remains unreleased for a bunch of reasons but um, is it finished I, it's not finished i mean somebody might think it is if they saw it but right. I, it's it's got a lot of work but it was it, it for anybody that's unfamiliar with g Spin, remarkable remarkable important hugely important place for american culture and and, and uh, just american history and life uh, it is in uh, a tiny uh, sort of northwest corner of Alabama mm-hmm. on the Alabama River. Uh, it is in a crook of the river that created in a bend of the river that created a sort of almost a walled off mm-hmm. um, community peninsula. Yeah. 700 community members, <clears throat> all African-American. Uh, and it was a former slave plantation. So most of the people there are direct des- descendants of slaves. There is a high percentage of people with the same last name which mm-hmm. was the slaveholders last name uh Petway but what came out of that and, and in the during the new deal era FDR deemed Gee's Bend the um kind of the poorest place in America and the 40 acres and a mule program that you know sort of cliche actually happened as part of the new deal and one of those places was in Gee's Bend mm-hmm. so everybody got 40 acres uh, a small house a smokehouse and a mule um to kind of tenant farm Mm-hmm. lands uh what came out of that place was uh some of the greatest art in american history particularly yeah. in quilts uh and those quilts were made not as an expression of art or at least the, the the people there knew they were creating art they were just artful people creating things out of necessity so yeah,
1: a quilt to keep them warm yeah that is Jean- also beautiful
2: right out of out of grandpa's uh, old overalls or whatever they yeah. could find. Yeah,
1: my grandmother, Bryant, my dad's mom was a quilter. Yeah. And each of the grandkids has one of her quilts now and yeah, so uh, just the, amazing.
2: Yeah, yeah. Handmade. So, oh yeah, yeah. Hand stitched every, every mm-hmm. ounce of it. So today, because of the tireless efforts of some some dear friends of mine that I met and kind of introduced me to that world, uh, the Arnett family, uh, G's Ben is renowned all over the world. Those quilts now sell for stacks of money. Yeah. And and helps uh all of those women primarily uh to live very very comfortable lives. Their uh their art is now displayed in every major museum in America for the most part. So cool. They have their own US stamp collection, a stamp series with Gee's Bend quilts on it, numerous books and documentaries have been yeah. made there. It's so awesome. Uh, our doc was is was about the music, um the sort of progression of field music and church music and mm. how that has lived on mostly through being passed down orally in a, in a small community like that.
1: Yeah. That's something that, uh, I really love the sort of your efforts. And then our friend Matt Arnett and his dad and the efforts uh, that you guys have all put forth to work and kind of bring attention in and, and to outsider artists, I guess is the lame way to say it. Yeah. But people like Lonnie Holly.
2: Yeah. Contemporary artists, you know, yeah. Lonnie Holly. Um, and, and and just to go back, if, just to connect it to me a little bit, meeting Lonnie Holly, and I was definitely a late bloomer. You know, I mean, like I'm, I'm all this stuff's happening in my twenties. Yeah, mid mid late twenties. Uh, I met Lonnie Holly, who, uh, as a part of that G-Spin, he's not from Spin, He's from he grew up in Birmingham. Uh, he is on level with the greatest artists in world history, mm-hmm. certainly in American history. You know, think of Sun Ra. Think of yeah. Uh, I mean you, you, you can't really define Lonnie Holly. Yeah. But I met him. And at the time I did, I just, something drew me to him and he immediately became, uh, one of the, one of my dearest, dearest friends. And, um, uh, he was living in this shabby warehouse in Birmingham, Alabama, creating this world-class art, trying to figure out how to make ends meet on a daily basis. Yeah, And, um, and eventually, yeah, through, through his own effort and the efforts of uh, many others around him, primarily Matt Arnett yeah. and Bill Arnett. His art now is displayed and his, his, he works in a lot of different mediums uh, from found objects is right. probably what most people know him for that know him, but he's a musician and, oh, and dude. now he has a, you know, five record deal. At, his music. It's just and,
1: like, uh, I mean, Sunrise is a pretty good example, but yeah. he's just this, uh, yeah. this sage and philosopher and yeah, He's just out there, but so connected to the world. And like, it's hard to to hear his music, which is just haunting and weird. And uh, it's not like any kind of, it doesn't follow any contemporary musical patterns or anything like that.
2: It's just pure Pure
1: expression.
2: Yes, pure expression. He does not write or think about what he's going to do before he sits down in the microphones roll. God. He then plays Unbelievable. and does whatever he's going to do. And this is true for his live show too. Uh, and he never plays it again. Sometimes the song's a <laughs> 15 minute epic called, you know, six space shuttles on 144,000 elephants. And it's, yeah. a, and it's this long kind of morality tale that gets yeah. you back to what's wrong with the world, which is uh, a lot of the themes that, that Lonnie expresses in many ways. Uh, and sometimes it's him banging on a lawnmower with, you know, Bradford from Deer Hunter or yeah, whatever. And, yeah, yeah, uh and, and it's a, you know, 30-second little piece of kind of a soundscape, you know.
1: It's really amazing. I mean, he could have—no uh, one could have ever known about him. Yeah. And people throw around the word genius, but, like, he's a genius just as much as a Salvador Dali or— a, and, a, and I know that that Matt kind of abhors the word outsider art the what the reason i used it is because that is an instant descriptor to people. Oh, of course. But it it's art and yeah. it's it should not be labeled outsider art. It's just as valid and important as anything else. Absolutely. You know, that that is trotted out at the the Met or uh, the Guggenheim or the High Museum here.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um I don't know when this will come out. Lonnie's on tour with Animal Collective right now.
1: Oh, really? He is? Uh this will be out in a few weeks. I'm I'm short on interviews, so. Good. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Uh, yeah, man, if you get a chance out there to to see and support Lonnie Holly, just check it out. Yeah. I it, love that he's an animal collective. That makes sense.
2: <laughs> it, w- it, it has, at least in my own experience, it has the chance to change your life. I will say that.
1: For sure. I'm glad we, uh, I'm glad we remembered to talk
0: about that. Yeah. Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock
1: Well, let's get into Chinatown. Oh, yeah. Uh, AFI's number 21. That list may be bullshit, but it's number 21.
2: I think it got demoted because I remember seeing it.
1: It may have because yeah. the list. Uh, How does that work? Well, the list was originally in 1998. And then I think at 10 years in 2008, they did another that version. Well, yeah. So well, it was probably higher because I was surprised it wasn't a top 10. Yeah. Uh, 11 Academy Award nominations. Uh, it only won one uh, for Best Screenplay, uh, The Great Robert Town. We'll talk about this kind of fucking perfect script yeah. all throughout. But it lost many of those awards to Godfather 2. uh it had the unlucky uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> release date to yeah. come out the same year as that movie. Uh, although Jack lost to Jack Nicholson, lost to Art Carney for Harry and Tonto. Faye Dunaway lost, uh, I think rightfully, to Ellen Burstyn for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Alice. Yeah. It's hard to deny that one. Uh, but released in '74, directed by Roman Polanski, we'll unpack that in a minute. Uh, written by Robert Town, produced by Robert Evans, and it's just one of those movies that uh, that Robert Evans era of the '70s filmmaking was just sort of this iconic period in Hollywood. I think, yeah. Um, even though, as immediately with these opening credits when they start rolling, it does not feel at all like a movie made in the 1970s. It it just smacks of a classic. 40s neo-noir yeah
2: yeah absolutely Or i guess film noir at that point i mean i did when you saw it the first time did you have that context or did you see it thinking i did not i knew i knew it
1: was i can't remember my first experience with it And i've definitely seen it a couple of times over the years but watching it two nights ago it was just like revelatory how perfect of a film it is
2: yeah yeah i for me i mean i i guess i've heard People say this about it too—that it now it really does sit in the canon of the actual film noir films, as opposed yeah. to sitting, you know, uh alongside of Raging Bull and Taxi Driver and mm-hmm. you know, even Godfather. I mean, it, at least to to a great extent. And I think I don't know if that was an intention that those guys had when they made it. But yeah, it it is. It's almost not neo noir. It's like classical noir. Yeah, you know? maybe because it's so. Uh, it is so perfect. I agree that it's perfect. I actually, I feel like I've got like a couple of problems with it. I would just love to know if they're just my hangups or yours, but <laughs> w- right. not, not that we should start there, but I no, just No, let's don't... start there. Okay. Oh, well, they're, they're sort of toward the ending. I don't know if that's okay, but. Yeah, um, that's fine. But well, uh, for, first, let me say it is. It it is, it is a truly, as as somebody who tries to create things, Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course you are one of those, uh, as well, it is just a daunting task to, to, to set out in my view, to set out, to create something that is going to set alongside of, or, or fit within, or even be an homage to such a, such a, a legendary canon of work like film noir or or whatever it is, right? To to sit down and go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a film noir.
1: Yeah. That's pretty intimidating.
2: Yeah. It, so I, I think to me, I always feel much, uh, more comfortable and, and feel like I'm in much easier territory when I'm walking out on the thinnest limb I can find because mm-hmm. I know I'm the only one out there
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I'm sure that there's a, some sort of, you know, insecurity that's driving that. Right. Cause if I'm out there, uh, and pretty much everything I've ever done has some, some facet of like, there's nobody that's really kind of done exactly this. And mm-hmm. there's probably a good reason, but at least I'm alone. And when I fail, mm. I c- it can't be compared to anything, but for town to sit down, I mean, and you know, look, he was a great writer, but I don't know that I would have, uh, you know, in the time machine, gone back and pointed right. to him, you know, and said, right. Like uh,
1: this is William Goldman or.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about our, uh, our friend, our mutual friend, Derek Brown. Yeah. Who's a great poet and just a, an amazing <laughs> human being. And yeah, I remember the way he became an artist. He was in the U.S. Army during uh, uh, golf, the uh-huh. Gulf War, Desert Storm. And he's like in a foxhole. And he just had this idea to like rewrite the parts of the Bible that he thought could use a little punch <laughs> up. And I'm like. <laughs> That's a very Derek Brown thing to do. Yeah. But it's the same kind of thing in this case. For, to me, it's like, I don't. That's just not how I think. So anyway. So I just want to say like, if you start there and then you achieve Chinatown. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's good stuff. Like if too. that is
1: your, if that was their intent from the beginning and to have achieved that, this movie could have gone wrong in so many ways.
2: Yeah. And then also to use such, you know, inspired by a lot of true events with, you know, Mulholland and, and all, yeah. all the kind of water and power stuff. Of, sure. What, 30 years later or whatever. Uh, and to be able to weave that stuff in, in a way that feels very truthful, feels very factual almost. You yeah. Know, like this was based on a true story almost. Yeah. Of course it's not. Um, yeah, a huge task, but getting back to my problems with it, 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 if we agree that it's a perfect movie is in so much as a movie can be perfect. Yeah. Um, the thing that has always bugged me is, and this is, uh, I guess there's no spoiler alerts on a, no, on no a it's, show about it's all spoiled uh, movies. When Noah cross, who's, uh, kind of the, what is he? He's like the boss of Los Angeles. He's a very yeah. wealthy, John Houston. Man. John Houston. My god. <laughs> what to talk about a statement. Yeah. Like who should we get to play this guy?
3: Oh,
1: how about fucking John Houston? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As far yeah, as Gravitas goes, man, when he first comes on the screen.
2: Yeah, worst worst villain of all time in my book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's not He's up there. Yeah. I mean, it's just to to me it's it's he's the worst villain in, because it represents uh, he represents somebody that's real, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to. Yeah, you know, you're totally Lex, right. Lex Luther or whatever, you know. So, anyway, um, when he comes to J.J. Giddis, a main character played by Jack Nicholson, of course, and Jack Nicholson's kind of has him dead to rights, mm-hmm. but then in come John Huston, Noah Cross's henchman, point a gun and say, It's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. You're done, right? Yeah. Uh, so he, so Noah is admitting that he's gotten it right, that Jack has gotten it right. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Then, so, so he's holding a gun and he says, where's the girl, right? That's mm-hmm. all, that's all Noah Cross wants is to find his daughter slash granddaughter, which is the whole thing we should talk about. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that. <laughs> uh, and Jack has by this time already hidden the girl mm-hmm. and Evelyn, uh-huh. uh, why does he take them to her? Why can't he just say, I don't know where she is. Why does Jack take them? Yeah. The very next thing yeah. you see is they're in a car. The henchman still got the gun pointed at JJ Giddes, Jack, Jack Nicholson. They roll into Chinatown, which is Chinatown's really only presence in the whole movie.
1: Well, except for being present throughout the whole movie. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Symbolically.
2: Uh, symbolically. They pull right up to where she is. Yeah. I I must have missed something. Jeez, I don't know. feels like a huge story gap to me.
1: I never really thought about that. I mean, is it possible that he felt genuinely threatened that he would be killed if he didn't do that?
2: Uh, I mean, I suppose that's the only logical answer.
1: That's probably the implication, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. He's got that. Houston has that great line in that seat, though, where he goes, uh, you may think you know what you know what's going on yeah. But but you have no idea yeah don't you feel
2: like he so intimidating i feel like he's gotta have like denture breath that <laughs> oh god <laughs> yeah i bet john <laughs> houston's breath was was pretty bad yeah i mean you'd want it you'd want it it's to like a hundred years of coffee and cigarettes
1: yeah. yeah uh well jumping back to the beginning one of my yes. favorite uh one of the best intros to me in movies it was so and this is part of the worship of the script that we'll have throughout this uh this dissection but uh that that intro scene when Burt Young is in there as Curly you find out everything you need to know about Jake Gittes in that 3 minutes in that office yep he he shows him the the photos of a woman in Florgrante with uh you know clearly shot from outside of a of a window so you know immediately this guy's a private detective he's chasing down unfaithful spouses for a living and uh his first line, you know, Burt Young starts to freak out a little bit, grabs the blinds on the window. And Jack says, enough's enough. You can't eat the Venetian blinds. It just had them installed on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that just kind of sums up who that man is, like beyond just being an awesome line. And there's so many great lines in here. But uh, and then on the way out, he says, you know, I'm not going to take your last dime. Like he's not going to fleece this guy for money. Yeah and that sets up of course the the favor repay in the third act with Curly. Yeah, exactly. When he drives him out out of the out of the house uh, and gets him away from the the cops Escobar. But um it's just such an efficient way to set up who that character is. You know, everything you need to know about Jack and that he is doing a job that he's not really proud of and he's a man of integrity somehow.
2: Yeah, yeah, and there's all that there's all those interesting nuanced details like yeah, you got You kind of get the sense that he's just moved into that office. Everything's a little clean and perfect. Yeah. And yeah, he's talking about new blinds and it's that that cream-colored suit. Yeah, he's dressed he's,
1: to the nine, sure.
2: Yeah, and everything just feels like, dude's kind of got it. He's got it working here. You yeah. Know? I also think that in retrospect, certainly on first viewing, this isn't the case. You could pretty much learn everything you need to know about the movie, uh, you know, in that, in that scene too. I mean, there's a lot of clues laid in that movie, which is yeah. really... I mean, in that scene, um, and which is, which is really, I think what makes this movie so brilliant is how the clue pattern is laid out Oh man. Uh, it's in a way just that perfect. you just never, <laughs> with one shot, maybe I could pick on, but with, for, for the most part, you just never see yeah. the clue path being laid.
1: No, because you think, well, he goes to the, to the hearing, uh, about the new dam proposal and all of a sudden you're like, what is this movie about? Uh, The original title of the movie was Water and Power. Yeah. Which, uh, and it's sort of, I mean, it's about a lot of things, but you think like the central, first, all right, let's back up here. You think the plot is about this private detective who is uh, chasing down uh, Mulray's uh, affair that he's having.
2: Simple infidelity case. Yeah.
1: Infidelity case of this guy who is the the engineer behind the, the the new dam project for the L.A. city. Then all of a sudden you have this water and power plot emerge when they—also a great scene when they're having that hearing and the farmer fucking runs his sheep through yeah. the court.
2: Get those goddamn sheep out of here. Yeah,
1: but it's like, man, it just sets up like this is what Los Angeles was in the night. Was it the 30s or early 40s? They, they had it set in the 30s. Yeah, the 30s is like L.A. was—I mean, there was— downtown and Chinatown and the burgeoning film business business and stuff. But L.A. was still like out in the valley, just fucking farmland. Oh, yeah. And like sheep herders and shit. (laughs) And it's hard to wrap our head around that now. But that does such a good job of setting up like L.A. as, as sort of a character in this movie. Absolutely. So you think it's an infidelity case. Then it has this great. I mean, it sounds if you've never seen the movie, it sounds weird to say this water and power subplot about diverting water. But it turns out to be super interesting. How
2: fascinating.
1: And we, you know, let's go ahead and save the, the real reveal till till the end of this
2: discussion. Yeah.
1: But um, you don't really know what's going on. And the way it unpacks these clues as you go is just brilliant.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. And so I was thinking about Mulray. He's a guy who really is good at his job, clearly. Yeah. Uh, he He's even... I think the way that they establish that he's sort of the, the morally just character by saying, "I will not build this dam that right. these
1: guys want to build." Yeah, like I made a mistake once. Yeah, and I'm not going to do it again.
2: Right. We ultimately see uh, the consequences he pays for that. Right. And many other things. Um, but he really, even though he barely says a thing in the movie, other than that scene when he stands up at the podium before he, uh, before he's killed, you really get a sense that that's just a very interesting perspective to tell a story from a uh, mm-hmm. sort of municipal yeah. sort of shit that nobody pays attention to. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. Why would anybody pay attention to that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's, uh, hired by, uh, what, what turns out to be a fake Miss Mulray. Diane Ladd comes in there, hires them to tail this guy when, uh, and then we learn that he's being set up, that Jake is being set up. Um, that JJ Gittis is being set up and, it's sort of all a big setup at the beginning it has nothing to do with the infidelity because the woman that he's with is not uh it's not a mistress
2: yeah i mean she was just a hired on a, i think i think she was a, a working girl is what she calls herself uh, on a later phone call yeah um so she was she was basically just a freelancer probably unaware of the plot she was was within i think uh some interesting points there what what the guys who hired her clearly didn't know. And this is what I love about this movie is that I I feel like these characters are real human beings. I feel like their motivations are so real. I I often, I just, again, it just feels like a true story, but, uh, I don't think they anticipated that JJ would go to the press. Right. Or maybe they did. And it was about, um, it was about just besmirching Mulray in public Mm -hmm. to force him to bend to their will, which we find out later would, Noah cross had not been an issue up to that point, but right. for whatever reason he was abstaining from doing the thing they needed him to do. And this just doesn't seem like any, I mean, you could just see this popping up in your Facebook feed today, right? <laughs> Maybe yeah. not to this extent, but with murders and stuff, but like, you know, leaning on someone to, to force a, a public works project to go your way. Yeah. Not even news anymore.
1: No. I mean, that's the history of America. Yeah. Um, and they also have the, the you know there's that great scene in the barber shop where Nicholson's getting shaved and the guy next to him and this kind of is such such good character work. Uh, the guy's like you know hell of a way to make a living you know trailing people and taking pictures of people in their bedrooms and uh and Gittis is so defensive about that he almost starts a fight with the guy. He wants to yeah. It's like you know we should step outside and settle this yeah. But uh, it says so much about that character and that there's so many things going on in this movie that are, have nothing to do with the plot. Like, it's about this man also, J.J. Gittes, who worked as a cop in Chinatown. And it's never explained what happened there, but you know that he didn't want to play ball with whatever dirty business was going on with the cops, which is why he either got forced out or quit the police force and became this private dick yeah, doing this kind of Schlum work that no one that's not really respectable on its surface
2: right yeah it's funny uh it's funny that's your impression because mine and it probably all uh has to do with sort of how we come at the world much less a movie but for me i always saw it that him saying i do uh you know i i I do honest work or whatever the line is is really in uh, i always interpreted that 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 was him telling himself that yeah To try to, to try to for sure soothe and that whatever whatever happened at the police station based on how he's living his life now and the lifestyle that he's kind of propped up, that it was about being able to make money. Right. Um, and I, I guess I know people that I feel like have kind of made that sell, you know, Uh to to go from maybe doing something that has sort of more of a, a more socially just purpose to something that just makes them be able to buy really sweet, cream-colored suit and <laughs> <laughs> in your office, you know.
1: Yeah, and he has that line, too. And uh, I mentioned this line because uh, we'll get to it again at the end. Uh, when I can't remember which character, but someone asked him what he did uh, with the police force in Chinatown. And he says, as little as possible. Yeah. And it's sort of a throwaway joke line that becomes very important in the closing minutes of the movie. Yeah. yeah. So um, we'll get to that. Yes. But, um, you know, Jake, Jake Gittes is in a— sort of a bid for respectability, which is why, like, after Mulray is murdered and dead, the case is kind of over, but he won't give it up because I think he knows that old cop instinct comes back where he knows that something's going on and he's just not going to let it lie.
2: Yeah, and He he does
1: get hired by Houston, but between those moments, he's still investigating.
2: He is. I mean, uh, you know, he obviously sort of, like true film noir, he gets intimately involved with with Evelyn Mulray there for a half a second, too. And, you know, perhaps his judgment is clouded. Um, Somewhere in some probably slightly boring film critique of this film, I saw once that, and it may have been Ebert, uh, I I would have to go back and look, but somebody made the point that this film is actually not film noir, that it's actually a horror movie. Um, And that there are many reasons, but one of the the reasons was because uh, Evelyn Mulray played by Faye Dunaway is really the most pure and, and sort of morally, uh, aligned character in the whole movie. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, because she's not a femme fatale, you don't have that element you can't have a film noir without a femme fatale. Oh, interesting. Uh, there was m- much more to it and I'm sure huh. uh, but anyway, yeah.
1: I tried to read some of the articles like the, you know, examinations on this movie. Those are always good. Yeah. You know, when you Man, get a good deep dive, stuff. yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, we meet uh, a couple of great henchmen, one of which is Roman Polanski, uh, who you know very famously. It's one of the most famous uh, woundings in movie history. When he, yeah, uh, and a great line too when he shows up. Uh, Where'd you get the midget? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Polanski sticks that knife up his nose and slits his nostril. Yeah, and that becomes a thing through the rest of the movie. He's got this big fucking bandage on his nose. Yeah,
2: it's pretty great. I feel like. Polanski managed to fuck up a really easy job there as an actor though. <laughs> like the, he shouldn't have been in it. Yeah. First of all. Yeah.
1: It's very Tarantino-esque to wedge himself in there.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cause the other guy was good. The other tough, the big guy. Oh, that
2: guy was amazing. Yeah. Mulvaney or whatever. It was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: But, uh, and Jack has the other great line about his nose. He said, I goddamn near lost my nose and I like it. I like breathing through it. <laughs> and I think you're still hiding something. And that's, that's what I love about the script is it's got that great bit about, I like breathing through it, but the key to that scene is I still think you're hiding something right. to uh, Evelyn. Yeah. And she is. Of course like she is. Like he's onto it yeah. from the beginning. But it's, again, we'll get to it, but it's so like yeah. comes out of nowhere yeah, the first she, time you see this movie.
2: Exactly. I mean, what she's hiding is beyond his comprehension, you would, uh, you would gather.
1: Yeah, but there are a couple of little nuggets laid there uh, as well um like when he first meets John Houston he's uh John Houston very like one of the first things he wants to know is if he's slept with her yeah uh and then when he first uh meets Evelyn uh she is she's very reactive when he asks about the fight that Mul- that her husband had with her father. Yeah. Like what that was all about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You can tell that those two are very much, uh, Evelyn and Noah Cross are very much keeping tabs on each other for very different reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, one thing I'll say about Towns writing on this film, or or I know Polanski, I guess, did some uncredited rewrites, so I don't know what's, who, who did Who, what? Nicholson? Uh, Polanski did.
1: And Nicholson supposedly wrote really? a lot of his own dialogue. So Is that right? Well, that's what they say.
2: Well, uh, what, what has always struck me about the Evelyn character is uh how absolutely perfectly double entendre everything that comes out of that character's mouth is. Yeah. Everything she says can be interpreted on face value, which of course is where JJ is is operating for uh-huh. most of the movie before the, you know, she kind of really lays the straight skinny on him. Um and and so uh I mean once you know and you go back and watch it and then there's a lot more insight coming yeah. from her stuff. But there's obviously this whole other layer. She never lies to him once. Really. Yeah. I, I, I would I'm sure I could I, I could get a good debate up on that. But um but I really don't think she actually lies to him once. What she does is it's that they're talking about completely different right. things each time.
3: Yeah.
1: And
2: she's dancing around it. I mean, there may be some lies by omission for sure, but yeah, I think
1: I, I think you're probably right. Nothing stands out to me as an outright lie.
2: Yeah, I mean, when when JJ says, you know, he's talking about you know the girlfriend or whatever, it's like, where you've got her hidden, and you know, she's right. always got a way to kind of like answer it.
1: Yeah, yeah. But never say, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, we first meet Noah Cross, and that's just, uh, like I said earlier, when John Houston just first appears on the screen, he's just larger than life. Like I can't imagine. Like, maybe John Wayne. Like, I can't imagine any yeah. other casting choice that would have been as as much gravitas as that at the time. And uh, he hires Jake to find the mistress of Mulray. So, I'll, you know, everyone's kind of hiring him to do different things. And I love it that each time he's sort of like, yeah, I'll have my secretary drop the contract. Yeah. And yeah, he's yeah. always taking the job. Exactly. Uh, e- you know, even though he's working for what turns out to be uh, ad- adversarial forces. Yep. Uh, But he always takes the job. But that's when, um, you know, the falling out with Mulray and Cross comes out and Evelyn says it was about the water and this whole kind of, uh, like I said, it's unexpected that a subplot about a water diversion would be interesting, but uh, it's fascinating. And I found this cool quote uh, from one of those articles I read. It said, the water rights scandal at the heart of the film Expresses how the ecological rape of the land has occurred in outrageous land development schemes that redirect the water's flow. And it reminds viewers that the days of abundant natural resources are past. The land has become barren due to the selfish manipulations of the rich and powerful businessmen. So it, it, it's not even about water. Right. It's about these powerful men in charge.
2: It is. It sort of, you know, reminds me of. Um... Maybe the modern equivalent, obviously we have a lot of natural resource, uh, problems, particularly still in California. Yeah. Uh, but I think about gerrymandering Oh yeah. kind of how the horse trading of that works. We and just did that's...
1: a stuff you should know episode on that. Oh yeah. A few weeks ago. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So how that's happening in the shadows or kind of in plain sight, however you want to
1: and allowed to happen. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's, it feels the same to me.
1: Uh, and then John Houston has that great line, um, Upon that first meeting, when he says, "Of course, I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians, ugly buildings, and whores all get respectable. They last long enough." Yeah, like can you imagine typing that shit?
2: Yeah, out like that's such a great line. Yeah, it's like and, one of the great lines, and and it's so believable coming out of that guy's mouth. I feel oh, like for sure just, didn't he like live in a castle and like I mean like
1: I don't know yeah. his daughter almost played the role. I think it was written for Jane Fonda, and then Angelica Houston almost played the role, and I don't know if she. I think she and Jack were together at this point too, which oh, would that's have been interesting. interesting. I don't think
2: I knew that. So that that actually has a little of that. Like, are you sleeping with my daughter? Yeah, thing. maybe.
1: But uh, I don't know why they didn't go with her. But I mean, Faye Dunaway, of course, is was a brilliant choice. Uh, not a lot of outright violence in the movie. Um, you have you know the nose slit, but there is that one great scene where Jake just kicks the shit out of that that tough.
2: Yeah, yeah. At the at the nursing home.
1: Yeah, and Good. she and she saves him. You know, he's about to get killed yeah that, by polanski
2: what uh so that's a really great scene for a lot of reasons because you start to realize how sophisticated this plot has been yeah you know and the uh what do you call him the the nursing home director guy or whatever yeah realizing that he's in on it clearly i mean uh-huh. he's, he's how uh polanski character and the other guy that the you know henchman would have known he was even yeah they like he gets in touch there, with them right he had yeah They're like, how about we walk around by ourselves? He goes, dude disappears. And five seconds later, the henchmen are there. Of course he called them because he's in on it. Because how else would you get all of those residents of his place to buy the land? Yeah. And ultimately. The plot, I mean, the plot is so
1: like richly convoluted in the best way. Yeah. That they're diverting water to the valley uh, secretly to, well, first of all, they're dumping Run off into the ocean. Yeah. That's where we first see Mulray when he trails him. But eventually they're going to divert water to the valley, which at that point was a barren wasteland, a desert. And they're buying up land parcels on the cheap through these, uh, folks in an old folks home.
2: Yeah. In their names, without, their, without names. their knowledge. <laughs> it reminds me of, and not to throw shade at the, uh, not with us anymore, but pretty much what Walt Disney did in Orlando. Oh yeah. So there were, uh, yeah. So the, he was Walt Disney, so uh-huh. he couldn't just go down and buy however many, you know, tens of thousands of acres. So uh, he didn't, in the
1: central swamp of Florida.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, he didn't. Uh, he didn't swindle all unknowing old people. Uh, so that part is obviously not accurate. But they set up all of these shell companies with these funny names and like five hundred entities or whatever it was mm-hmm. were. Purchased all the land, and they were all which became Disney World. Everything funneled up to wow. just Walt Disney buying land.
1: Yeah. Well, I think I mean I had Mike Collingsworth in here from uh, BoJack Horseman, and uh, he's he's an animation history freak, and he he was not too kind to Walt Disney either. So I think like the real story of that guy is not so pretty. Yeah,
2: it's usually the case. I mean, yeah. I hate to say it, but like if Noah Cross were a real guy, mm-hmm. and this many years had gone by. Uh, he would probably be more revered than hated, I bet. Yeah. You know, look at Edison. I mean, there's so many. Sure.
1: Well, especially back then, you know, when so many stories were not told.
2: Yeah, when you you could hide.
1: Yeah. Uh, So you have the classic love scene and that that great, great scene. And again, with the script, the way they set that up is Jake uh, sees the flaw in her eye. Like you you have a black mark in the green part of your eye and it's just an excuse to get close to her but it's so sensual yeah and uh kind of romantic and uh it's just so well played
2: it is do you know maybe i'm i've missed it does uh the daughter the granddaughter does she have a defect does she have the same defect
1: oh i don't know that's an interesting thought yeah i'm curious about that yeah, well he learns about her after that. So he tails her secretly, tells tails Evelyn, and um and you I mean the plot is still just unfolding until the very, very end of the movie. And he sees this woman uh being sort of held hostage, it looks like, through the window, and he he assumes it's the the mistress, right?
2: Right. Well that, I mean that is, you know, to go back on my earlier statement, I think that is the time that Evelyn does lie to him and right. say, you know, I'm just looking out for her, I feel bad for her. Right.
1: Then we learn Escobar from Escobar uh, that salt water was found in Mulray's lungs. Yeah, and it's all starting to come together. And th- and when once you've seen this movie, when you go back and watch it a few times, there are all these great little things laid out along the way. Yeah, like uh, when he sees the the water garden in the back of the house, and the uh, the, the groundskeeper says it's uh, bad very bad for the, for the grass. Bad for the glass is what he says at first. Oh, that's right. You know, because he's, he's Asian and he gets the L's and R's confused. And Jack's like, bad for the glass. What do you mean? He gets interrupted, but he sees something in the water kind of shimmer. Can't get it because Evelyn comes out there. But then later on, he realizes that he meant bad for the grass. That's a saltwater pool. Saltwater was found in the lungs. He fishes these glasses out, which he thinks are Mulray's glasses. And he obviously puts it together that Mulray was drowned. In, in the backyard of his own home.
2: Right. But even at that point he still, still thinks that Evelyn did it. Yeah. I and mean, yeah. it's she's there, he's there, it makes perfect sense. And the viewer it,
1: thinks that Evelyn did it, I right. think. Like if you you know, the first time you see this movie, I don't know if you can go back there, but you don't really know what's going on. That's it's clues are laid, but it nothing is ever like directed so blatantly where you're like, oh well I, I got this figured out. Right. You know
2: Yeah. It's all stitched together. That's why they call it the perfect movie, I suppose.
1: Uh, and then in that final 10 minutes, that's where you learn the truth uh, in that one scene, which now is a bit of a trope like and obviously completely wrong that, you know, you slap a woman.
2: Oh, sister, daughter, sister, daughter.
1: Yeah. But it's so powerful to see that scene when he's slapping her and she's going, she's my sister. She's my daughter. She's my sister. She's my daughter. And knowing uh, that's when you learn the, the what this really is about is incest. Right. <laughs> which like. Fucking! It hits like an atom bomb in that movie. That yeah.
2: reveal—it's the end. It's it is the m- unconceivable end of the line. Uh, that, in terms of, from a writing standpoint, when you think about how how do you take this to its logical conclusion? Yeah, this is like seven <laughs> miles past that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you know you learn that uh, John Houston's character Noah Cross. Is uh, it, it raped his daughter when she was fifteen. Faye Dunaway.
2: They had a baby together. She doesn't ever. You know what I found? It was just one of those touches that's just so sophisticated. Um, when he says, "Oh, he raped you," she doesn't answer, does she? She's kind of like, she's kind of like, eh, yeah, maybe. You know, I mean, she's she, there. There's still a sense, uh, at least the way I uh, the way I interpreted that that. You know, she was complicit in being molested by her father. Yeah, or compli I mean, yeah, complicit
1: but, in that she couldn't fight back. You know what
2: I mean? Right. Maybe. Yeah. I kind of read it as like what, which it is very it, ambiguous. It is. I I kind of read it as like what you hear a lot from from victims of abuse that. They harbor a lot of guilt because they they, they viewed the relationship as some sort of romantic relationship and therefore they were partly to blame. Right. And that's how I read it. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, I know people that have gone through that. Yeah. And they have been unpacking that shit since it happened. Yeah. Uh, Because if something like that goes on. And what's not known in this movie, if it was a one-time thing or if it was abuse over the course of years— But that's where that damage is truly done when it's over the course of years and years where you are complicit to a certain degree because you're a fucking kid. Right. And you don't, you're totally being taken advantage of and manipulated. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, with Polanski, we might as well go and talk about...
2: Oh, let's do it.
1: I mean, it was a few years after where he was obviously uh, very famously arrested and tried and convicted of uh, what they called then... uh, statutory rape but as the stories came out of the year just straight up rape i mean she was younger but by all accounts he he totally like drugged and forced himself even though he denied that Uh, and he said it was uh consensual right it's that's certainly not the case
2: yeah well i mean there there is no such thing as consensual sex with a with a minor (laughs) yeah who has had quaaludes and
1: champagne and you know kind of the way that went down is just truly despicable
2: yeah you know what it what it Constantly brings me to is what do we do with artists in history from Herodotus to uh, Woody again, Allen, Woody Allen, Michael Jackson, sure. Oscar Wilde, but keep on and on. Uh, what do we do with their art? I know. What do we do with what do we do with the Cosby Show? I know. Um, and I don't have an answer. I don't and either. I don't suggest uh, anything. I just it's just one of those things that just baffles me. You I know. know Polanski. Is both a monster and a genius, and a lot of a lot of monsters are geniuses. Is potentially yeah what the you know maybe the easy lesson is, uh, but also you know and I think about man what is There's there's an awful lot of people in Hollywood that have kind of given that guy a pass, it's, right? You know, mentioning Woody Allen's another good example of that,
1: yeah. But do you go back now and and write off every movie that Harvey Weinstein ever touched? Um, maybe
2: maybe you should. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I certainly saddens me to think, to to think that thought. Yeah. But it's equally or more saddening to think about the pain he's caused people's, you know, lives along the way as he made those movies.
1: Well, and then you find yourself um, reckoning with yourself like, well, he was just the producer. uh, So, you know, producers, he didn't make the movie. Mm. So you can still appreciate Reservoir Dogs even right. though uh you know Harvey Weinstein championed that movie right and you yeah. you make uh you make deals with yourself so you can still watch art that yeah. you like that was made by awful people yeah and if all the stories of all the awful people ever throughout history that have ever made art came out you're knocking a lot of people off off the pedestal you are rightfully so. but again it's there are no easy answers
2: there aren't I, yeah, all I know to do is just, uh, see it both ways and try to just try to see the make sure that the, that the dark doesn't overshadow the light and the light doesn't, yeah you know, drown out the dark.
1: Yeah. I'd be curious to hear from people what they think. Cause I certainly don't blame anyone for drawing a hard line and being like, fuck that. They're dead to me and everything they ever made is dead to me. You yeah. know?
2: Yeah. I, I certainly would never. Pass judgment on that. I mean, but Chinatown's a perfect movie. <laughs> it's pretty damn perfect.
0: Have you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall in a therapist's office and get a behind the scenes look at what they're really thinking? I'm Lori Gottlieb. I'm a psychotherapist and I write the Dear Therapist Advice column for The Atlantic.
3: Hey, I'm Guy Winch. I'm a psychologist, and I write the Dear Guy advice column for TED.
0: And we're the hosts of a new show on the iHeartRadio podcast network called Dear Therapists.
3: Think of it as an advice column in the form of a podcast, except we talk to you.
0: But it doesn't stop there. One of the most frustrating things for us as advice columnists is that no one gets to hear what happened and how things turned out.
3: But on our show, you will. We ask listeners to test-drive our advice and come back on to give us an update.
0: So if you'd like to talk with us about a problem, big or small, send us an email at advice at iheartmedia.com.
3: We can't wait to get you on our couch.
0: Guy, they'll be calling in.
3: Yeah, but they could be sitting
2: on a couch. Hey, did you know Uh uh, Peter Bogdanovich was supposed to direct this thing? Oh, really? Was this after Last Picture Show? Yeah, so it was um, Evan's first movie uh, as an independent uh, producer, right? So he had been at Paramount for whatever, 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, Kid Stays in the Picture and that whole thing. Yeah. Um, This was his first film outside of that and he wanted Peter to direct it uh, but ultimately you know, I forget exactly what happened but ultimately Polanski got it. I guess Jack was going to potentially direct. It. Oh, should we talk about Jack too? Like just as a, <laughs> as a stalwart of American yeah. cinema. What, what are your thoughts?
1: I mean, he's Jack Nicholson. He's one of, he's one of the best. Uh, because he, he's managed to pull this magic trick in his career. I think where he completely embodies characters while also being Jack. Right. At it, the same time. And usually one, it's one of the
2: other. Exactly. I, um, I heard Kubrick say something about, uh, he got critiqued and it was from, uh, I forget who, let's say it was Scorsese or it may have been Spielberg or may have even been Stephen King about Jack's performance in The Shining. And Mm. basically the, the as I remember, it was something like, Hey, Stanley, look, you know, I love you. But that was, that movie was a miss. It was just a flat out miss. And Stanley's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And said, so Jack, Jack's performance is so broad. It takes you out of the movie. And it, and it I think, is, illustrates what I've always thought about Jack, which is it's almost like, um, you know that thing on modern TVs that people can turn off or on? It's a setting that, I guess it's called like frame smoothing or something like that. I know exactly
1: what you're talking about. Okay, whatever it makes it look is. like a fucking soap opera. Right. And it's the worst setting. Right.
2: So my father-in-law has that on his big giant TV and he's watching like
1: Twilight Zone. Same right? here, dude.
2: And yeah, And he doesn't. <laughs> Notice, you know how it makes, yeah, it makes everything look like it was shot on video. Yeah,
1: like, Emily yeah. calls it daily's mode.
2: Yeah. Uh, my father-in-law doesn't detect
1: that. Yep, same. My father-in-law is like, the same way.
2: Doesn't see it at all. Or like <laughs> cilantro. You know, some people it's the awesome on a taco and other people it tastes like Their fucking soap. dish soap. Yeah. I feel like Jack is that. You either see that thing, you see the Jack thing <laughs> yeah. as the reason he is what he is or yeah. the thing that makes him... Well,
1: yeah, I mean, so much about his iconic roles is in his Jackness,
2: exactly. However, in this film, I feel like he's not doing Jack. I mean, you know, what, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's J.J. Geddes, for yeah, sure. Yeah, which is an interesting thing because certainly on either side of this film, and obviously Cuckoo's Nest, just yeah. after that was full, full Jack.
1: Yeah, and he just has a, he just has a way of reading a line, man. Yeah. It's just a gift. Yeah, of spitting out. Like with the Venetian blinds, that first line in the movie, you know, it's just so perfect. Yeah, I've said that word a lot. Uh, and let's let's talk about the end. Um, perhaps the most unsatisfying ending in movie history.
2: Un, you said unsatisfying. Yeah, the wow.
1: wrong people die. The right, the wrong people get away scot free. Yeah, it's just a fucking gut punch. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, the end of the film. We, it all comes out that father is a rapist incestual rapist uh she tries to get her daughter out of there shoots him in the arm the way that last scene is played out is a little goofy when yeah, you look little, at it yeah. but um she takes off down the street and what you want more than anything is for her father to be brought to justice and for her to get away and that that cop goes out in the street shooting just blindly down the streets of Chinatown yeah shoots her through the fucking eyeball yeah Dead on the horn of the car, granddaughter slash daughter freaking out, and the cops are like, Get get everyone out of here. Like Noah Cross, you're free to go with this spawn that you have created. Yeah. And she's dead, and it's just like a gut punch.
2: Do you get the sense that uh Escobar and the other guy are uh are they are they under Noah Cross's
1: well, she says he owns the police. That's one of her last lines when, uh, I don't know, maybe. Yeah.
2: I mean, that would explain why he just starts shooting at her.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I never really thought about that. If they were actually in on it or if it was just like, here's the rich and powerful Noah Cross that we all know. So I have to, you know, this woman shot at him. Yeah. And she's looks like the bad guy right now.
2: Yeah. Maybe I'm a pessimist, but it, you saying it was an unsatisfying ending, um, is interesting because of course it is, especially in, so you know, dark. in cinema terms. <laughs> uh, but for me, I've always struggled with, uh, with, especially in trying to make things and, you know, TV shows, films or whatever, that down endings aren't, that, that, that a down ending can't be satisfying. For me, yeah. that, it's a very satisfying ending because it, <laughs> uh, I think it confirms maybe the, my worldview.
1: Yeah. You know, which is that. I, I know what you mean.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that powerful people get away yeah. with, you know, with whatever, uh, often with yeah. whatever they want. And so, um, it feels, As a piece
1: of art, is satisfying. I know what you mean. Yeah. Cause it is real and dark and I don't, I don't need a happy ending on every movie. Right. But it leaves you just dejected as a viewer,
2: yeah, I mean, it, to me it says okay yeah there there's how the world is, yep, and that's not I guess there's an irony to calling that a satisfying thing, but yeah, uh, but it does it it is it is at the very least maybe one of the ballsiest decisions in cinema history to to use that ending
1: yeah, and they uh, uh I'm sure they shot an alt well, i don't know if they I don't think they shot an alt, but uh I did dig this up um very famously contentious production and in, in Polanski and Town and Evans all fought a lot about the script. And uh, apparently there were a couple of months where they just locked themselves in a room and fought about the script. And uh, Robert Town said this, we fought every day over everything. Names, what's her name? No, it can't be that. It's too ethnic. It's this. No, it's that. And then they came into conflict on whether uh, apparently there was uh, narration early on very noirish voiceover that Polanski lost, right? Which I think is probably Good the right call. move. Good call. Uh, but the ending apparently was a major bone of contention. Uh, Robert Towne had written a conclusion where Evelyn survived and killed her father, but Polanski was in a dark place. He had, this was just a few years after his wife was brutally murdered by the Manson family. Yeah, so he was, you know, he was making movies that reflected that. I think everyone kind of knows that. Uh, And Polanski said, I thought it was a serious movie, not an adventure story for the kids. Uh, He said, whereas Town said, you know what? Your wife died. Beautiful blondes die in Los Angeles. That's just what happens. So he didn't budge. And Roman finally said, I want it written this way. And Town said, I think it would be very bad if I wrote it that way. And he said, try it anyway. So I did. I brought it back to him and said, see, it's so melodramatic. And Roman said, no, it's perfect. And that was that. So Roman's the one who, Polanski's the one who wanted to stick to that dark ending. And apparently he, you know, Town wanted it the other way, which I don't know if it would be a happy ending, but um, at least it would be a little more satisfying for the bad guy to get caught.
2: Right. I heard an interesting, uh, funny story. I don't know if it's true, but I I forget where I heard it. But uh, apparently when they were shooting, uh, one of the scenes in the car, Faye Dunaway, like you know, it's hurry up and wait on set, of course. And uh, Faye Dunaway yelled out to Roman Polanski, Hey, uh, how much they time? battled
1: a lot, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So she was like, Hey, how much time do I have? I need to go pee, right? Um, and he was like, Sit still, we're, we're, we're about to shoot, like, and then he's over there doing 15 things and uh, and forgets uh-huh. that she said that. And basically, he was just like, S- Sit down, shut up, right? We'll be with you in a moment. He goes over to the car eventually to give some kind of direction or something like that. And, uh, the window is down and she has a cup full of piss. No way. right in the face. Throws it
1: on him. Yeah. I hope that
2: story's true. Yeah. And he's like, <laughs> what the fuck? Uh,
1: wow. Uh, so. all right. So that line I said earlier, um, that when Jake and earlier in the movie, when they say, what do you do for the, what did you do for the police force? And he yeah. said as little as possible. That line comes back at the very end. It's all you almost miss it he's He's looking at Faye Dunaway's eyeball shot out, her head shot out um speechless. It's just a chaotic scene, and he mutters under his breath as little as possible, yeah, and that's where that line comes back and the maybe the best last line in movie history, you know the Escobar's like, "Get him out of here." I'm doing you a favor. Get him out of here. Take your friend and get him out of here. And the guy goes up to him and says, "Forget about it, Jake. It's Chinatown." Yeah. And it's just like I got goosebumps now thinking about it. Yeah. Just such a bow on the end of that movie with that line.
2: Yeah. It really really is. Uh what else should we say? Tuckers? Well, I don't have anything else. Um Did you know Evans was uh, convicted of cocaine trafficking? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> That was the kid stays in the picture. When when I, when I knew we were going to do this, I was like, I don't know. I don't know a ton about him. And I've seen that movie. I guess I would just forgotten about that.
1: Well, that's where true romance kind of got that whole thing with the, the Hollywood producer running cocaine right was based on Robert yeah. Evans. Um, all right. We finished with what Ebert said and five questions. Oh yeah. What did Ebert say? This
0: movie is a complete disappointment.
1: Ebert gave it four stars. Uh, the crimes in Chinatown include incest and murder, but the biggest crime is against the city's own future by men who see that to control the water is to control the wealth. At one point, Giddes asked millionaire Noah Cross why he needs to be richer. How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? And Cross replies, the future, Mr. Gitts, the future. Of course, he mispronounced his name through the whole movie. Uh, And like most noir stories, Chinatown ends in a flurry of revelation. All is explained, relationships are redefined, and justice is done or not. Town writes, of my eventual conflict with Roman, an enduring disappointment over the literal and ghoulishly bleak climax of the movie. Certainly, the wrong people are alive at the end of the film and dead, but I'm not sure Polanski was wrong. So, uh, I kind of agree, man. Yeah, that bleak ending really—it's a gut punch, but it was necessary, almost. I think.
2: Yeah, I think so. I don't. I don't know that we'd be sitting here talking about that movie if it weren't for that ending. I had like a sunny, happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: all right, five questions, bud. What's uh What's the first movie you saw in the theater?
2: Uh, Christine. The oh, right,
1: of course. You mentioned earlier. Uh, first R-rated movie might have been Christine. Was it was that definitely R? R-rated. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that's a double whammy. Your first yeah, movie so. in the theater was R-rated. I guess so.
2: How old were you? I don't know. I'd have to do the math. What was what year was that? I was I don't born know. in '77. I want to say that was maybe you know 80, 85 or something. Three or four. It was like pre Gremlins, is all I can remember. <laughs> Which uh, I think. There's a connection here. I want to say Jerry Goldsmith wrote the score for Gremlins. Oh, he wrote really? The score for Chinatown.
1: Oh, uh, well the score for Chinatown. We didn't even mention. Yeah. I, I think I said, saw somewhere that he wrote that score in like a week or something. Uh, not surprising. Uh, let's see. Christine, 1983. Yeah. Well, there you go. So I was six. A little young for Christine.
2: <laughs> of course it
1: was. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, will you walk out of a bad movie? You know, I know you don't get to the theater a ton anymore.
2: I, I don't think so. I often fall asleep in movies. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Even at home, my whole family gets very angry at me. I actually think that it's. Well, you wake up at like fucking five in the morning, don't you? Yeah, four thirty, (laughs) whatever. I think it's some sort of like road hypnot, like hypnotism. Yeah. I watch things that have been edited all day, Uh and I don't fall asleep when I'm like giving notes on things that I've made or whatever. But for whatever reason, watching a film, I think it's 24 frames a second does something to my brain and I'm go to sleep. So I don't, yeah, I'm usually asleep. All right. Did you rewatch this by the way, this week? Uh, I did. Oh, okay.
1: I thought you had, but, um, all right. Number four, this is for you. What movie do you wish you had
2: directed? Wow. Uh, man, there's. So many that I would, love, I would love to take credit for, and many I've tried to rip off. Um, man,
3: I'm gonna I'm gonna say.
2: I think a hell of a lot of harmony, chlorine. Oh, okay. So, I mean, a film like Gummo is is something. Wow, that I come back to just uh-huh. really. That it's such an achievement on so many levels in terms of what that film was. Yeah. it's not a very popular film necessarily. Um, but also, I mean, there's some documentaries that have a huge influence yeah. on me, like American Movie. Yeah, so you great. Know, to to go make American Movie would probably be my ultimate.
1: All right, and I'll, I'll update everyone from the uh, 13 or 14 texts you're going to send me over the next few days about what movie you wish you would. Have yeah, directed. I'm sure when
2: I think about <laughs> it more. Yeah. All
1: right, and finally, movie going 101. When you get out to the theater, what's your what's your deal? Where do you sit? What do you eat?
2: Uh. Pretty boring that way. Sit in the middle. Yeah. Usually sit where my kids want to sit now. They're cool. They like good stuff. So, yeah. We'll go see some stuff. Haven't seen Black Klansman yet. That's probably the next thing we'll see. Yeah. I've heard that's good. Yeah. It's a pretty fucked up story. I mean, like, yeah. True that's story, been, too. Amazing. Right? Yeah. Uh, I would use, I would, so, so I used to be a major sugar addict, like, mm-hmm. right. Famously. Uh, and so I would typically, my standard order would be that giant bag of, m&ms followed by that giant bag of reese's pieces oh wow there's big movie yeah movie theater bags and a giant coke now casey's got me um on the on the wagon so Are you off sugar altogether yeah pretty much yeah i lost 20 pounds like in three weeks yeah you look Great. good thank you you too all right thanks brother thank you man.
1: this is good bye All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, That was a great conversation. Chad and I have had many conversations just like this over the years, uh, not in front of a microphone, and it was a pleasure to sit down and have him in the studio. Such a good friend and uh, just really great taste in in movies and culture and and TV and films and literature and music. Chad always is turning me on to something great that I didn't know about before. And uh, I'm glad we got to talk about Chinatown Hope we did it justice. Uh, I felt like we, we got into a pretty good deep dive on this one, which I always love. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So thanks to Chad for coming in. Uh, you can go check out School of Humans. Go to their website, see what they're up to, and look for Hell and Gone, uh, which is coming out very soon. Uh, it's a new true crime podcast that he's he's working with us on. Uh, very, very cool story about uh, a woman, an investigator from Arkansas, a little tiny town in Arkansas, where there's a cold case uh, from one of her sister's friends that was uh, very sadly brutally murdered. And she has uh, left Arkansas, has now gone back and is investigating this crime. And it should be really, really good. I'm looking forward to that uh, getting out into the world. So look for Helen Gone soon. And I uh, hope you enjoyed this one on Chinatown. And until next time, seriously, forget about it. It's Chinatown. Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at How Stuff Works Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Dear Young Rocker is more than just a podcast about music. It's a memoir of how it feels to survive high school when you don't fit in and the freeing feeling of picking up a guitar for the first time. It's also advice for anyone who is or was young and has ever felt weird or alone. Dear Young Rocker is written and narrated by me, Chelsea Erson, executive produced by Jake Brennan, and comes to you from Double Elvis Productions. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Honey German. And I'm Carolina Bermudez. And, and this, this is, is Life in Spanglish. Spanglish. And you know we're cooking it up in here. We got that arroz con pollo waiting for you. Why are you looking at me so confused? Because I'm like, what are we cooking? We don't <laughs> have a stove. <laughs> you got the bajo. I'll get, you know, you got the mangu. We got it all for you at Life in Spanglish. I need a sancocho <laughs> if I'm getting any type of food. Listen and follow on the iHeartRadio app or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.